Hello, and welcome to Thank the Academy, the podcast where we talk about every Academy Award-winning best picture in order. This is the Academy Archives, and this week we're discussing Academy Award-winning film Star Wars and comedian Bob Hope. We're your hosts, Zach and Kristen, and that's our producer, Kayla. Howdy. Hello. Hello. We're here. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about some fun things. Oh, boy. <laughs> I can't shake him. <laughs> As you heard in the intro, we're talking about Star Wars. Star Wars. <laughs> I've been waiting to talk about this film for a long time. Yeah, we were talking earlier, and it's kind of a daunting film to talk about because there's so much info out there. I know. And it's hard. so many people who are so much more knowledgeable. Yeah, when you get to these films that like, I don't know, literally everything about them is like super well documented because they're one of the most popular films of all time. <laughs> it's hard to know what to talk about. Yeah. We'll see if you surprise me at all today. Did you have a similar challenge in talking about... Mm, no. One of the most popular <laughs> hosts of all time. Well, I mean, he's a very popular guy, but I don't think everybody knows too much about him. I mean, I didn't know who he was before this uh-huh. like podcast stuff. So, you know, there are people like me out there. This one's for you, <laughs> Kristens of the world. <laughs> I'm here to educate Some you. people out there who don't know every stuff. <laughs> uh, but before we get too far into talking about these amazing things, uh, we have a Bosley review. We do. We do. I also wanted to mention this. Because I didn't know that this was real, but Bosley helped me find it as we were oh, good job, <laughs> looking Boz. into great animal performers. All right. Did you know that there's an award called the Patsy, which is the Performing Animal Top Star of the Year, given out by the Animal Humane Society? Every year? Well, not anymore, but oh. in the like 50s through late 70s. Oh, wow. Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. And they did it for both television and movies separate categories oh my so for example the pig from green acres was like the long-standing champion oh my. of the television category like year after year oh boy. the cat from uh, breakfast at tiffany's won one year uh also <laughs> francis the talking mule won a bunch of times oh. like just funny things from like different movies most of them are pretty obscure like things i just don't really know but uh yeah they decided to uh award animals interesting a performance award so because of that this uh specific movie is about uh a cat i know that oh. we normally talk about dogs but i wanted to honor this cat that won the animal of the year award you mean bosley wanted to honor of this course cat? bosley wanted to honor this cat bosley is a gentle creature that loves <laughs> all other animals so uh he and we talked about this movie quite a bit so the movie that bosley wants to review is harry and tonto Oh, yes. Yes. In this movie, it's an Academy Award winning movie. Uh Art Carney won Best Actor this year. Um, But it's about a man, a retired teacher, who loses his apartment in New York and finds himself with nothing but his a few possessions and his cat. And Mm. they go on a cross-country journey looking for a place to belong. Tonto, I'm guessing, is the cat. Yes, that is the cat, (laughs) uh, which is also the name of the performing cat as well. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Tonto was a ginger tabby. Mm. Lots of cute things in the movie. Harry walks Tonto on a leash, which is inspired by the director's mother, who did the same thing in the village. 
Bosley also appreciated some of the really fun shots in this movie. There were some fun innovations he acknowledged. There's a shot in the apartment where the camera's on Tonto's level, kind of like showing you perspective from the cat. And they were able to do this by um, having the camera on a blanket and pulling it down the hallway. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so lots of fun things that Bosley appreciated the innovation for. Um, Art Carney, of course, won the Oscar for Best Actor that year, and director Paul Mazursky stated that he felt that Tonto should have been nominated and awarded as well because he had an equal part in the film. Yeah, and I mean, he was also a title character. Absolutely. Bosley agrees. He, uh, from his critic's perspective, he sees this as an injustice. Mm. <laughs> and as I said, Tonto won the 1975 Patsy Award, Performing wow. Animal Top Star of the Year. <laughs> Amazing. So all of that to say, Bosley gives this movie and this performance 10 tailwigs out of 10. Wow. Bosley, so many. Yeah, an impressive animal movie, both from an Academy perspective and a dog's perspective. Wow. He uh, recognizes talent. Well, good job, Bosley. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We have quite the episode lined up, so why don't you uh, take it away with telling us about that old movie that some of you may or may not have seen, Star Wars. <laughs> okay. Uh, first, I'll start with a recap. Oh, goody. <laughs> Please enlighten us. Princess Leia sends... That's not how it starts. What? Yeah, it is. <laughs> a long time ago. All right. In a galaxy far, far away. I did... I Let it be known, I did have to remind Kristen that this is not a film that happens in the future. We were That's talking about true. this, and she yeah. was like, well, you know, you know, because it's sci-fi <laughs> in the future. It was in our Annie Hall episode. I yeah. was talking about production design and well, how- Well, some people might not have listened to that one. Well, catch up, folks. <laughs> <laughs> a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. You're right. It is in the past. <laughs> so whenever that time is, Princess Leia sends plans of the Death Star with R2-D2 and C-3PO down to the planet of Tatooine as her ship is overtaken by Darth Vader. The two droids looking for Obi-Wan Kenobi are captured by Jawas and sold to Luke Skywalker's Uncle Owen to help work on their moisture farm. That night, R2 escapes looking for Kenobi so Luke and C-3PO follow. They find Kenobi and Leia's message is transmitted while Luke learns that Kenobi knew his father and that the rebellion against the Empire needs their help. Obi-Wan, Luke, and the droids pay Han Solo and Chewbacca, local miscreants, to transport them on their ship, the Millennium Falcon, to Alderaan to aid the rebel contingent there. Unfortunately, the planet of Alderaan has just been destroyed by the Empire's new superweapon, the Death Star. The Falcon is pulled into the Death Star and all seems lost until Luke and Han Solo, disguised as the Empire's stormtroopers, find Princess Leia and explain they are friends of Obi-Wan. They eventually escape the Death Star thanks to Obi-Wan sacrificing himself to Darth Vader so the others can get away. Once they are reunited with the Rebels on Yavin 4, they use the Death Star plans to form a mission in which Luke delivers the final blow to the ship, destroying the Death Star and restoring some peace to the galaxy. There you go. Does that sound like the plot? Oh, yeah. Yeah. All right. So this film um, had a budget of $11 million. Okay. And it grossed $778 million. $220 million in 1977. So it was number one at the box office. Um, 
the number two film at the box office we did not even mention because it had nothing to do with the Oscars, oh. and that was Smokey and the Bandit. Oh, okay. And then the number three was Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Ah, okay. Um, Annie Hall was all the way down at number 10. Mm. So the vast amount that Star Wars has grossed over the years keeps it at the second highest grossing film of all time. Boy. all of history. Wow, that's crazy. Um, Speaking of which, if you're ever thinking about watching it, don't watch it on Disney Plus because they have all those weird added scenes included. Well, it's almost impossible to watch it without those now. Really? Well, Almost no cuts of it exist without those. Do the DVDs have that too? Yes. Oh, man. I'll get Rats. into that. Okay. All right. Um, so the number one film all time adjusted for inflation, of course, is still Gone with the Wind. Uh, then we have Star Wars. And then number three is The Sound of Music. Oh, wow. Yeah. So those are our tops of the tops. All right. So I'm mostly going to talk about George Lucas because mm-hmm. there's a million and one things to mention about this movie, about the making of this movie. About Pretty the much actors in the movie. Every and... actor has written books upon books about their time working on the Star Wars films, about their time having affairs with one another, about George Lucas, and George Lucas has written books, and there are books and books and books and books about and <laughs> articles and, and articles documentaries and documentaries about the making and of films the puppets and, and, and oh, all it's kinds crazy. Of stuff. So <laughs> On your own time, if you're also obsessed with Star Wars, go and watch and read all of that. Uh, so I'm going to talk about stuff that I learned for this. Okay. Uh, because I didn't know too much about the like about George Lucas in general, but also like really behind the scenes of making and what he was thinking sure. coming up with this. Well, when we had talked about how you were going to talk about this, I think you said something to the effect of like, you're following the through line of what we've talked about in the past. And we have talked about George Lucas in the past because of American Graffiti. Yeah. And we are sort of telling the story of Hollywood through the lens of what we find interesting. And through the lens of the Academy Awards yeah. and the c- contributions that... Yeah. So yeah. the last time I talked about George Lucas was in our American Graffiti episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and go listen to that if you want to hear about the early parts of George Lucas and meeting uh, Francis Ford Coppola and all of that interesting stuff, getting his first movies made and mm-hmm. stuff like that. I pick up where I left <laughs> off there. So George Lucas is very interested in doing a space film. For some time in his life, he wants to make a space film. He gets more interested in it after he makes his first feature film, THX 1138. Mm. Uh, It's a trend in his life that he does not know what to title things. Uh, We also mentioned this in the American Graffiti episode. (laughs) And he told everyone that he was going to make something in the vein of Flash Gordon. The Flash Gordon comics exist. There has been some sort of like a movie or TV show about Flash Gordon. um, And he really wants to make Flash Gordon. But Flash Gordon and, like, all of its properties are considered pretty, like, lowbrow. They're not up to par with other things that exist, like superhero-y Batman-type stuff. Mm -hmm. But he can't get the rights to it. No matter how hard he tries, whoever owns the rights doesn't want to sell them, or they're locked up in some trust, and he just can't access them. Um, So finally, he tells Francis Ford Coppola, his good buddy, uh, that he's just going to make up his own space story. All right. So that's when he secures a two-picture deal with United Artists. Um, He gave them the script for American Graffiti, and they paid him $10,000 for that script, and yada, yada, yada. 
they ended up not wanting to make American Graffiti. Uh, but the second of these two films in this deal, uh, he told them would be a sci-fi space film. Unfortunately, since they were not interested in American Graffiti, he made it with Universal. He decided to pitch the sci-fi story um, in 1973. He'd spent weeks fleshing out the story, making up names and planets and a new planetary universe. Um, At the time, the pitch was called The Journal of the Wills, and Wills is spelled W-H-I-L-L-S. Not sure what that means. All right. Uh, And it followed the story of C.J. Thorpe, a Jedi Bendu. Oh, gosh. Being trained by his master, Mace Windy. Ooh, all right. (laughs) Oh, boy. Uh, So you can sort of see the early beginnings of some Star Wars things. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was similar in structure to the Japanese film The Hidden Fortress, which was directed by Akira Kurosawa. Mm -hmm. Uh, Lucas was obsessed with Kurosawa small note, and samurai, and those types of things. If you can't tell from his movies. Yeah. Um, United Artists heard this pitch and felt that it was very interesting and sophisticated, but they passed on it. Sophisticated? Yes. <laughs> uh, so that's when Lucas and his producer buddy, Gary Kurtz, who also worked with him on American Graffiti, decided to pitch to Universal because they were currently making American Graffiti with Universal. Uh, Universal declined as well thinking that Lucas was not experienced enough to pull off the scope of such an epic Uh, story. sure. Francis Ford Coppola heard it and thought it was interesting enough, so he decided to pitch it to William Friedkin and Peter Bogdanovich. Um, The three of them were currently working together as, like, a production unit for Paramount. Mm. So he pitched it to the three of them to be like, hey, we could be producers on this and make it for Paramount. What do you think? And Friedkin said that Lucas was not and would not be a good director. So (laughs) he was very uninterested. Um, Disney also was pitched this and they passed as well. Well, they aren't passing on it now. That's for sure. Back in the early 70s. (laughs) Finally, Kurtz and Lucas pitched it to Alan Ladd Jr. at 20th Century Fox, who was not very interested in the project, but was willing to bet on Lucas. Which is interesting because everyone else was kind of the opposite. Right. Hmm. So he offered him $150,000 to continue developing the idea and to write the script that then 20th Century Fox would own at the end of it. Mm. Um, Once American Graffiti did well at the box office, Lucas, in one of the most genius moves in Hollywood history, somehow decided to (laughs) renegotiate his deal with 20th Century Fox that ensured he would own the sequel rights and merchandising rights for the story. Boy, that is very, very lucky. Yeah. A stroke of luck. Yes. Most things he does seem to be a stroke of luck. (laughs) Um, Eventually, Lucas wrote four different drafts of what came to finally be known as Star Wars. Each of them are very well known in Star Wars lore for varying degrees of ridiculousness or their plot points. Uh, So, like, if you're a really, like, hardcore Star Wars nerd, you know, like, what each of these drafts have and, like, where certain (laughs) things came from. Anyways, uh, he created the characters of Anakin and Luke Starkiller, the Sith, Jedi, etc. He had the idea to create the character of Chewbacca because he had a rather large Alaskan Malamute named Indiana 
that would ride sitting upright in the passenger seat of his car whenever he went anywhere. Oh, that's cute. Oh, Bosley, what do you think about that? Yeah, so Indiana inspired, of course, uh, Indiana Jones as well. Aww. The name of the character. It's like he has this love for his dog that permeates all of his creative endeavors. Yeah, imagine that. We don't know anything about that. <laughs> um, during the third draft, Lucas hired artist Ralph McQuarrie to start generating concept art for the story, which was essential to the future success of Star Wars and the general look and feel of the entire franchise. Um, basically, all of the like visual components and the style of Star Wars is mm-hmm. due to McQuarrie. Cool. They settled on the idea that Star Wars would be a very antithetical to ideas of sci-fi in film up to this point in history. Um, so Lucas was fascinated by the idea of a, quote, used space, hmm. as in outer space. Yeah. Um, that was dirty and grimy, that had planets that were full of dust and dirt and mud and jungles and ships that were beat up, pieced together, that were clunkers or lemons, rather than the sterile, clean, like very shiny, mm. always put together like sci-fi stuff that mm-hmm. existed up to this point so far. Gotcha. So it's like very, very different from 2001 in sure. because of this. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, so different. The only thing that's really sterile or anything like that is the Empire. Right. And that's the negative side. Right. Or the dark side. So at this point, uh, Lucas's draft was around 300 pages. And he insists now, like present day now, Lucas... Uh, that he was taking out constantly good material and just saving it. Mm. Um, Constantly adding, constantly taking out some stuff that he thought was really good and then saving it away somewhere. (laughs) Because he knew then that he was eventually going to make a bunch of Star Wars films. Okay. That's what he says now. He would often explain, uh, or he explains now, that he often thought the film, this film, would happen right in the middle of the whole story of Star Wars. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I, hmm, all right. Um, Revisionist so history? <laughs> this is when he initially starts breaking the story up into the original three films that he does produce, as we know them in the 70s and 80s. Um, so the first of which, which is this film that he's currently making, uh, had a very, very boring ending. So he decided to move the ending of the last film which is the destruction of the Death Star, to the end of the first film, mm. creating a exciting finale to Star Wars and the eventual need for two Death Stars so that the second <laughs> one can also be destroyed <laughs> in the third film. In 1975, uh, Lucas is already talking about a trilogy, and this is true. Mm. So before he even starts shooting this film, he's knowing that he sort of wants to make a trilogy. Uh, which, quote, ends with the destruction of the Empire and a possible prequel about the backstory of Kenobi as a young man. Oh, okay, cool. So he was already mentioning this in the early 70s. Well, and that kind of makes sense because I feel like Obi-Wan Kenobi is one of the few characters that seems beloved across the board in everything he's in. And so it makes sense that there was some thought about that already. Well, and... That brings us to this point. In realizing that the Death Star would be destroyed at the end of the first Star Wars film, uh, Lucas realized that the character of Obi-Wan would have nothing to do in that portion. So he Mm. decided to kill him off so that he wouldn't have to explain what he was doing. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Ah. (laughs) Which, again, is like, 
if that's the way that you're deciding, he got very lucky because it makes for a very important plot point. It of does. Like, it ah, does. He's, uh, you know, he's distracting everyone by doing this fight mm-hmm. and he's uh, sacrificing himself for the good of their escape. Mm-hmm. And then also he's positioning himself in Luke's mind force life, you know, <laughs> which like is nothing that he thought when he actually did this. Right. So Lucas finally turned in a draft to 20th Century Fox, which is the third draft, um, and it was titled The Star Wars from the Adventures of Luke Starkiller. Um, It included several paintings of McQuarrie's so that they could get the full idea of the film and like the style that they're going for. Mm. Uh, They approved almost everything and set the initial budget at only $5 million, hoping that Lucas could make good on his promise in his pitch that it would be a low-budget film. Oh, boy. Um, eventually, the budget was raised to $8.25 million. Um, so Lucas began rewriting with this budget in mind, playing into the used space nature of the film even more, knowing that like everything looking the way it did in 2001 A Space Odyssey was not even in the budget. So like, sure. they had to commit to this fully. Sure. Um, the fourth draft was finally completed uh, January 1st, 1976, just before filming and was titled... The Adventures of Luke Starkiller as Taken from the Journal of the Wills, Saga 1, The Star Wars. Oh, my Lord. (laughs) Good grief. (laughs) He loves a long title for some reason. Oh, boy. Uh, Between January and March of 1976, Lucas worked with his writer friends from USC, Gloria Katz, and Willard Huck, who worked with him on American Graffiti, to edit the script into its pre-production form. Um, About this, Lucas said, quote, what finally emerged through the many drafts of the script has obviously been influenced by science fiction and action adventure I've read and seen. And I've seen a lot of it. I'm trying to make a classic sort of genre picture, a classic space fantasy in which all the influences are working together. There are certain traditional aspects of the genre I wanted to keep and help perpetuate in Star Wars. Hmm. One thing that's really interesting, I think, in reading a lot about what he was talking about when he was making this first one is he thought of this more as fantasy than sci-fi. Hmm. He talks a lot about the brothers Grimm actually hmm. where he feels, or at least at that time, I don't know, revisionist. He likes to say a lot of things that he was <laughs> feeling now that I don't know. At that time, he said a lot of stuff that was like, I'm making a fantasy movie. I'm making a fantasy movie the way that like Westerns are a fantasy when they were being made Mm. or the way that certain epics and like the huge action, big budget films or like the big budget musicals were a fantasy. Mm. So he's using this like sci-fi genre and creating the new fantasy, like modern sci-fi, which is like more rooted in like the fantastical type Mm. of stuff. Gotcha. Um, During this round of editing is when the name Skywalker is also finally created and replaces Starkiller. It's probably for the best. Um, Obi-Wan was killed, and then the title was cut to The Star Wars, and then simply Star Wars. Ah. Finally. Um, As he was sharing the script with all his friends, his director friends and buddies, and, uh, you know, pitching them the idea to kind of get it all working. One thing that he did include in the original script is the opening crawl. Mm. Uh, So that was always meant to be a part of it and Mm. always was from the early idea. Mm. I don't know if it's just because it's like a staple of epics or I don't know. 
It's also like... That's just what he wanted to do. I mean, if it, if he's comparing himself to like the Brothers Grimm, that's what the fairy tale movies are doing too. They right. open on a book that tells you the setup for Snow White or Cinderella or Sleeping Beauty and what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, so he had them read this thing that he wrote and part of it was like poetry also. Oh, brother. And it was like six times as long as it was <laughs> in the actual movie. Um, so his friend, director Brian De Palma, um, and I did not know this, actually took it from him and edited it and he is the one that actually wrote the words that are in the opening crawl in mm. Star Wars. Cool. Which is really interesting. I did not know that. Um, during pre-production, when Lucas learned that 20th Century Fox had just shut down its visual effects department for financial reasons, nice. uh, he started his own visual effects company, knowing that his film was going to have a lot of them, which led to the creation of Industrial Light and Magic, which, of course, has become one of the premier effects companies in Hollywood history. Mm. So lucky for him, he had the forethought to do that as well. Yeah. Um, Gary Kurtz and others uh, started location scouting, initially scouting the Philippines for Tatooine as it was originally meant to be the jungly planet. Oh, okay. But Kurtz knew that the climate would make Lucas what he said, quote, itchy. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So they decided to scout more like dry, deserty regions in the world Mm -hmm. and then settled on Tunisia. Um, cinematographer Gilbert Taylor joined the team after Jeffrey Unsworth, who'd been hired first, decided to take a job on Vincent Minnelli's film A Matter of Time. Uh, by that point, Lucas was very busy with other pre-production stuff, so he and Taylor did not have time to meet and discuss the film very much ahead mm. of shooting, uh, which led to a lot of disagreements. Taylor said that Lucas, quote, avoided all meetings and contact with me from day one. So I read the extra long script many times and made my own decisions as to how I would shoot the picture. I took it upon myself to experiment with photographing the lightsabers and other things on stage before we moved on to our two weeks of location work in Tunisia. So this proved a little bit difficult because Lucas had really only worked on or been on set for low-budget independent films. Mm. So he was used to the director like being in charge of everything. Yeah. Kind of like the Peter Bogdanovich... Orson Welles type of like, sure. I'm going to stand behind the camera. I'm going to choose all of, you know, how the camera works. I'm going to make comments on all the lighting and like be in total control of that. But this is not the way that Taylor wanted to work. Uh, he was basically like, I'm the cinematographer. I'm going to do what <laughs> I do and you just direct. But luckily, I mean... The film is gorgeous looking still. Yeah, it really is. And part of it is that Lucas really wanted it to look very unreal. He wanted it to look like a fantasy. And Taylor was basically like, no, everything has to be totally crisp. It has to look totally real. And we have to buy into like that this is actually a real world that exists. Mm. Which, again, lucky for Lucas, (laughs) he didn't get his way. So the first two weeks of filming were all on location in Tunisia, where they shot all of the outdoor Tatooine stuff. Then they moved to Elstree Studios near London, where they filmed all of the interior scenes. Um, They had so many sets that they took up every single stage at Elstree for the duration of their shooting. Wow. So they were the only film on the lot. Wow. One thing that Lucas also didn't know how to do was how to direct actors. Uh, uh, and older. really the only direction that he would give was faster, slower, or more intense. Oh my gosh. 
Kurtz said in an interview in 2011, quote, It happened a lot where George would just say, let's try it again a little bit faster. That was about the only instruction he'd give anybody. A lot of actors don't mind. They don't care. They just get on with it. But some actors really need a lot of pampering and a lot of feedback. And if they don't get it, they get paranoid that they might not be doing a very good job. Lucas wasn't gregarious. He's very much a loner and very shy. So he doesn't like large groups of people. He doesn't like working with a large crew. He doesn't like working with a lot of actors. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> So there's that. (laughs) Um, It's so funny to me, like, reading about the making of this and about George Lucas, because he's just like... You know what it reminds me of? When God chose Moses. Yeah. (laughs) It was like, you need to set the people of Israel free. In this case, God's like, you need to make Star Wars. And I know you're a buffoon (laughs) and you can't do this. But you gotta do it because the world needs it. <laughs> uh, well, and I'll just mention a few of the people in the cast. It, it's interesting that he came across the people that he did also. Like, they were all almost purely by luck as well. I mean, it's very well known that Harrison Ford, he like sort of stumbled upon and then had Harrison Ford in the callback room just reading opposite everybody. So he worked on the 20th century fox lot as a carpenter right in between acting stuff so he was on the lot he liked his voice he said come in and just read opposite all these people Mm. and then finally he read through all of the han solos and he was like oh you know you sounded a little more interesting because you were sitting here reading the whole time how about i give it to you (laughs) and then mark hamill uh he did actually have mark hamill audition for american graffiti And Mark Hamill was a little too green at that point for him to want to cast him. Yeah. But uh, he and Brian De Palma held joint casting sessions, which is really crazy, uh, while Brian De Palma was casting for Carrie. Good grief. And he was casting for Star Wars. So they both wanted to, like, see a bunch of random people, so they held their auditions together. So they were (laughs) auditioning people concurrently for Carrie and Star Wars. (laughs) Um, And... Uh, Mark Hamill came in for Carrie. Oh, huh. not for Star Wars. Wow. And George Lucas was like, oh "My gosh, oh, that's in- he's interesting looking. Like he's, you know, could play this part. So I'll have him also read for Star Wars." Then they say that lightning doesn't strike twice, but man, it struck like fifteen times in the same place here. Yeah. Well, and then there's Carrie Fisher, <laughs> who of course is like Hollywood destined to be in this film. But, of course, her relationship with George Lucas is very tenuous and horrible because he is a misogynistic (laughs) person through and through, as we mentioned many times on American Graffiti, uh, and is called out for it constantly. Um, (laughs) She spent her whole life Calling him out. (laughs) (laughs) What a horrible misogynist he was. Uh, The famous one is that he told her many times that people didn't wear bras in space (laughs) so there's that and the last person i want to mention is alec guinness because he had no business being cast (laughs) in this film as such a highly trained actor um i mean we've talked about him a few times because he's been in other best picture winners or best picture nominated films and it's interesting because he really wanted just to come on and do his thing and leave. He didn't want to be a part of all of the 
hoopla around the film at all. Um, one of the f- stipulations in his contract was that he would not have to do any press for the film. Oh, that's so nice. Well, and luckily he's in a character that isn't like the main three characters. So yeah, but I mean, he un- immediately when the film comes out, he is one of the most beloved characters. Oh in the film. yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, he's amazing in the film. He was nominated for Best Supporting Actor yeah. for this film, yeah, which is which crazy. Yeah, which is incredible. Um, but one of the other things that I wanted to mention that he did that was amazing uh, is that he did not get a salary for this film. He decided that he would just cut a deal for 2.25% <gasps> of one-fifth of the royalties that Lucas was going to make on the film. Okay. Which Lucas agreed to. Okay. And it made him the most money of any film he ever made. Oh, my word. (laughs) Yeah, boy. Luck again. I know. For just this small role that he had in this little film. Oh, boy. In this space fantasy. (laughs) Yes. Um, One other big part of this film that doesn't get talked about a whole lot, I don't feel, uh, was the marketing for the film. Hmm. So Dan Perry created the original logo, which is on the poster. So this is on the original poster. Mm. It's the Star Wars font that is like um, thinner at the top yeah, and goes like out angled. wide. Yeah, yeah. Um, everybody would recognize it, right? So that was on the poster, and the poster was very. It's the original poster is very like epic fantasy. Luke with his shirt like gaping Ripping open. Off yeah. And <laughs> Leia laying there seductively. Yeah. And... Like on his thigh. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. They made the poster, whatever. Then they wanted Signinger advertising to be brought in to help with the advertising campaign for the film. And uh, there was a young art director who worked there, Susie Rice, who was only in her early 20s. Um, who Lucas, who was like assigned to Star Wars by the ad agency. Um, So she went to Industrial Light and Magic and talked to Lucas for a long time because she was going to be the one to like make a brochure about it and basically run their whole ad campaign for the film. Um, And then she was the one that created the Star Wars font. Mm. So she went through all this thing with him and like, decided to create the font based on what she thought the font of like a fascist regime should be. <laughs> um, and it was a little more pointy in the original version. Um, you should look it up because it looks really interesting huh. also. But then she finally found like the Star Wars font and mm. made that and the iconic title. Um, and then... They decided then to change the official logo to that because they just liked what she did so much, Mm. Um, which is just so crazy that she was, she was only like 22 or 23 when she did this. And she basically created the most iconic type font (laughs) in like history, basically. Pretty wild. Um, So then that's when they decided to use her font as the title card too. Nice. Um, The last story I want to say We all know the story. It came out. It was a huge success. Blah, blah, blah. Whatever, whatever. (laughs) We all know Star Wars, so I'm not going to go into that. Uh, But Lucas was super down on himself because they had gone over budget, and he didn't know if it was going to be a success. The crew thought it was just a child's movie the whole time they were making it. They didn't respect him as a director. Well, I 
think it has less to do with the movie <laughs> than it does with him. Um, so his good pal, uh, Steven Spielberg, Aww, was buddies. currently making uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind at the same time. And so he was like, hey, why don't you take like two days off of filming and come like hang out on my set and just like take Aww. a little break. So he went to his set and was like, amazed and it kind of had the opposite effect he was like oh steven you're such a good director and everybody loves you and look how good your film is gonna be and it looks so amazing and okay so they were both going back and forth and spielberg was like you know who knows both of our films may be successful both of them may flop you know we don't know which is going to be more successful and lucas was like yours is going to be successful more successful by far so why don't we have a bet on it So, they decided to bet that they each would get two and a half percent of the profits of each other's films this year. Oh. Oh, my. (laughs) Because they were sure that the other person's film was going to be more profitable. Wow. It may be the most profitable bet ever made by anyone in Hollywood history. Oh my gosh. By Steven Spielberg. Yeah. Because that funded the rest of his films, I guess. Literally to this day, he still makes two and a half percent on oh everything relating to this first film. Wow. So he has made well over sixty million dollars. <laughs> like just on the gross of like the box office receipts of this film. Wow. That doesn't take into account any other amount of money. Merchandise yeah. and all kinds of other. Whatever else he's into because of this deal that they made. Wow. Boy. <laughs> he really made out. <laughs> well, and it's funny because Close Encounters of the Third Kind also was an extremely high high grossing film. Like yeah. it grossed over its lifetime over $300 million. Mm. So it also netted Lucas, a, a lot of money, too. Yeah. But just so funny. Boy. Such a weird thing. Such a weird time with, like, all these directors who are good pals and friends and, yeah. like, coming up together finally. Mm-hmm. So that's what I have to share about Star Wars. Nice. Um, I'll just mention, again, the awards that it was nominated and won for. So all in all, Star Wars received 10 Oscar nominations. It was nominated for Best Picture. It was nominated for Best Director for George Lucas, Best Supporting Actor for Alec Guinness, Best Screenplay Written Directly for the Screen Based on Factual Material or on Story Material Not Previously Published or Produced or Original for George Lucas, Best Original Score for John Williams, which it won, Best Sound, which it won, Best Costume Design, which it won, Best Art Direction, which it won, Best Film Editing, and Best Visual Effects, both of which it also won. So pretty two special awards as well. Yes. And then two special awards. Yes. For the puppetry and the creatures. Yes. Um, So all in all, like a technical like Marvel. Yeah, definitely. Which again points to the fact that like Lucas had nothing to do with that part of it other than (laughs) to sort of like come up with it and approve it. Yeah. So again, lucky for him that he had the idea and had the wherewithal to like Trust push it forward and, and trust other people yeah. to do their jobs. Boy, that's crazy. So Star Wars. Star Wars. The most important movie of my childhood. Yeah. <laughs> well, and with that, uh, we go to our next segment of this episode. 
And that is you talking about Bob Hope. Yeah. So today I want to talk about Bob Hope. Uh, If you listen to our regular episodes, we just celebrated the 50th Academy Awards, which was Bob Hope's last time hosting the Academy Awards. He has hosted the Oscars the most out of any host in history, Hmm. hosting it at 19 times. And that was his last one. So I figured... I may as well go mm. ahead and talk about his life and his contributions to the Academy. And yeah. Also, I mean, of course, he's a well-known comedian and host of lots of things. So mm-hmm. um, he was born May 29th, 1903. His name was Leslie Towns Hope. Oh. Hmm. Yeah. He didn't change it till later. Um, and just like a little bit of an overview. As I said, he hosted the Oscars 19 times, just more than any other host. The only the runner up to that is Billy Crystal, who has hosted nine times. So still even 10 more than the next closest person. I didn't realize that Billy Crystal had hosted that many times, though, even. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Hmm. So, I mean, as we get into these later years, he comes around. (laughs) Um, He's just beloved for his style of comedy. He's considered one of the fathers of American Mm. stand-up. He really set the precedent for what comedy could be as a stand-up comedian, which is Um, it's hard to believe, but that wasn't a thing that existed until like the fifties, you know? So he really is important in comedy history just in general. Um, he did have some successful films with Bing Crosby. Most of his films though were a flop other than that. Um, but he is more renowned as a host. Um, he's hosted countless specials. He, um, has a bunch of his own shows on NBC and that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. that's more of like where his career is. Um, uh, the other thing I thought was kind of cool, um, cause I love the business side of things. He's, uh, one of the first comedians to ever run himself as a business. So oh. he kind of paves the way for how the future of like mark marketing is the wrong word, but like controlling your money, your finances and your like marketing yourself as a business essentially. Oh, um, cause like today, uh, you know, once you hit a certain threshold, you become an LLC or whatever it is. And so he was one of the first people who was like, I am the commodity. It's right. like, he's not an actor beholden to agents or beholden to, you know, the, the studio or a contract or whatever. He himself is the mm-hmm. business. So, mm. and, uh, it ends up being very profitable for him. So I'll talk about that a little bit more, but I thought that was kind of a cool, like, that is interesting thing. Um, I love like innovations in like how the industry works. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I said, he was born in a 1903 in Eltham, London. He is the fifth of seven sons. His family emigrated to the United States in 1908 via the SS Philadelphia. They passed through Ellis Island uh, and immediately moved to the grand land of Cleveland, Ohio. Oh, very grand. <laughs> As a kid, he made some money for himself by busking and dancing and doing like little comedy things. It's hard because it's not considered stand-up comedy, but he mm-hmm. would like essentially like tell jokes and be silly and people would give him coins and stuff. type Vaudevillian, stuff. Absolutely. Um, he even won a competition, a dance competition for his impersonation of Charlie Chaplin. Oh. He like loved that kind of stuff. Another thing as a young person that he loved was boxing. He had a brief oh career. Uh, his name was Packy East. Uh, okay. <laughs> he was not very successful as a boxer. Um, but well, with a name like that. <laughs> once he became successful, he actually staged several charity bouts uh, oh, to raise yeah. money for different organizations because right. he loves boxing. Oh, cool. 
Um, he, during his young adult life, he did lots of odd jobs. He was a butcher's assistant. He was a line man at Chandler Motor Company. Hmm. Eventually he was assisting his brother clearing trees for a power company. When there was an accident, he was sitting in one of the trees when it fell. (laughs) Okay. That is quite an accident. uh, So they're chopping down the trees and he's just in the one they're chopping down. I see. I don't know exactly how that was he doing it as a bit (laughs) i really should have written that differently (laughs) he was in a horrible accident (laughs) in a tree that fell right down while they were chopping it up what i'm trying to get to here is that it crushed (laughs) (laughs) sorry i don't know why this is killing me oh bob hope you're hilarious it crushed his face Crushed his face? Yeah. Oh, no. So we had to go through a lot of reconstructive surgery. Uh. Uh, which gave him his signature look. <laughs> All right. Oh, That's great. Sorry, I don't know why that cracked me up. I just said it in a way that killed me. All I'm right. sure he would love that you <laughs> get satisfaction from it. Oh, man. He loved making people laugh. He, well, Bob, hope you've done it again. <laughs> um, yes, all I'd say was a tragedy. <laughs> but it is a very big part of his brand because it, like, changed how his face is. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I can see uh, that. Okay, sorry. Let me take a second and recover. Uh, okay, sorry. Anyways, so he did want to go into show business from a young age. Um, as I mentioned about the busking and the comedy and all that kind of stuff. Um, so he was doing a bunch of like dance competitions um, and he was discovered as a dance couple with his girlfriend at the time uh, at a competition by silent film star Fatty Arbuckle, mm. who I, I don't know if we've really talked about him. We mentioned his name a couple okay. times. Yeah. Star of the silent films. Um, so he invited him to join Hurley's Jolly Follies, which was essentially a vaudevillian group mm. um they travel they perform that kind of thing and during this time he came up with his act with a couple other people called dance medians okay so they were doing comedy and dancing together comedians dancing dance medians oh, wow. um so that was kind of his bit and i want to mention here that as they started doing this act essentially it started uh as a blackface routine uh. um but it was very soon cut and turned into just a regular thing because people were telling him why are you putting on a character you're funnier as yourself you don't need to do the vaudevillian blackface thing Mm -hmm. um so he stopped doing it and people appreciated it more which it's good but you know i you gotta tell the full thing so he did do that which is not good during this time he also changed his name to bob from Leslie because he thought it sounded friendlier. I was going to say, it's also a much funnier name. It is. It is. And like the accounts of it are like, it sounds like a name that you would go get a beer with him or like mm-hmm. something like if it's more like blue collar or whatever yeah. than Leslie Towns is. So yeah. during this time in 1930, he was uh, when their circuit went through like the LA area, he was given a screen test for an RKO short subject film uh, he did not get the part, but it did open his eyes to a possibility that he could maybe move to Hollywood and do mm. that instead of doing the touring thing. Yeah. Um, and also, of course, during this time, like shortly after 1933, he marries his vaudeville partner, Grace Louise Troxel, 
Um, and then he divorces her in 1934 because that year he meets Dolores Reed, who comes and joins the company as a singer. Mm. It's very unclear as to how everything kind of happened because there wasn't any formal documentation, at least that the biographers have found that is legally explaining what happened. But we know that he was divorced and remarried. There's a lot of rumors that it was an overlap, that he was with Dolores, Mm. like married to her while still married to Grace Louise. And, you know, people are like, he's a bigamist, blah, blah, blah. But my guess is more like they fell out of love. They were separated. He was with this other woman. Mm -hmm. Whatever. I don't know. But he was married to Dolores Reed for 69 years. She was his only wife. Oh, my gosh. So Um, long. Yeah. Uh, That being said, uh, he had a reputation throughout his whole life as a womanizer. Mm. Um, And it's strange because it definitely seems like their partnership worked. Like, they had a decent relationship, like, working relationship, especially Mm -hmm. because she was a singer. She was a part of a bunch of his different variety shows and things like that throughout his life. Um, and I mean, they were together until he died and seemed to like not have a lot of issues. They adopted four children together in 1939, 1940, 46, and again in 46. But throughout his marriage, he saw other women and it was like well known around Hollywood. He set up actress Barbara Payton in an apartment in Hollywood. And then when she wanted more money and attention than he was willing to give her, he ended up paying her off to end the affair quietly instead of publicly. Hmm. But then she did a tell all in a confidential magazine in 1956 about the whole affair and the apartment and everything so that kind of like busted um he also had a long-term affair with actress marilyn maxwell that was so open in the hollywood community that they referred to her as mrs bob hope oh my and then he also had a long-term relationship with rosemary franklin who was a beauty queen and uh she was uh, awarded miss world 1961 who they apparently had a 30-year affair together. Oh, my. Um, And she's cited as the great love of his life. So all this to say, I am confused because it doesn't seem like divorce is a problem because he divorced his first wife. Mm -hmm. So I don't know why he didn't divorce his second wife. I don't know if it had more to do with his image as he became more of like a clean-cut Hollywood guy or if it just was convenient or if their money was entangled in each other's stuff. Like, who knows? It could be any number of reasons, but that is one of the most notorious things about him is that he was just a known serial cheater, essentially. Hmm. So, I mean, does nobody think that they could have had some kind of an arrangement or probably? Like, I mean, I didn't look too far into this. That they it's, were really in a throuple or <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> a part of it is that there is some like secret setups kind of a thing happening, like the apartment and stuff like that. So, like, to me, that doesn't read as throuple necessarily, but well, maybe not with her, but with the other person. I don't who, know. Who knows? I I am not saying no. I would need to research because a lot that of more. that kind of stuff definitely was not ever shared in Hollywood because no. those types of things were far more looked down upon then yeah. than they would have be now. Well, and you have to remember he married her in the 30s and then the rest of this happens throughout the yeah. Hayes Code. It happens through the blacklisting, the Red Scare, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, you can't talk about these things openly anyways. Um, and maybe he felt like he couldn't get divorced because that wasn't Americana. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I have not researched his love life too much. I kind of just wanted to include it because it's a part of his personality. So... I don't have a good answer to that. I would need to research that more. And Well, I, and maybe nobody knows. Maybe. Maybe. 
Who knows? He was pretty open with his biographer, so maybe there's something there. But back to his career. (laughs) Um, His first Broadway appearances were actually in 1927. He was in The Sidewalks of New York, and in 1928, he was in Ups a Daisy. They were both very minor walk-on parts that kind of coincided with his vaudeville schedule. Hmm. Um, He returned in 1933 to star as Huckleberry Haynes in the musical Roberta. And he did a couple other musicals throughout the rest of his life. He did do Zigfield's Follies at one point, Mm. um, that kind of thing. And another thing, just later on in his life, once he was, you know, rich and successful, he rescued the Eltham Little Theater, which is his hometown in England, from closure by providing the funds to buy the property. Um, And he would regularly visit the facility whenever he was in England. um, And the theater ended up being renamed in his honor in 1982. Oh, wow. Um, He also had a broadcasting career, which began in 1934. Um, He was a series regular for NBC Radio um, for the Woodbury Soap Hour, um, and he got a 26-week contract for that. Hmm. And then shortly after that, he served as the MC for Rippling Rhythm Review. Uh, And during this time, he had a lot of fun with different musical acts. So that was like a big part of what his career became is like incorporating some music into it. Shortly after that, the... Pepsodent show starring Bob Hope began, and he signed a 10-year contract with the show's sponsor, Lever Brothers. Wow. He continued a very, very lucrative career in radio through the 1950s. In the 50s, radio's popularity starts to wane, and brand new shiny silver screen television starts to happen, and he jumps ship real quick. Uh Uh-oh. And he uh, realizes that that's the trajectory, and he's pretty savvy about things and goes with that. Yeah. Meanwhile... On the film side of things, all these things are happening all at the same time, so I don't have a good way to explain it other than to just kind of categorically go for it, go through it. So he did his first film in 1934 while he was in New York during his like Broadway stint. Um, he signed a contract with Educational Pictures of New York for six short comedies, the first one being Going Spanish in 1934, and he was not happy about it. He thought it was terrible. He told newspaper columnist Walter Winchell, quote, when they catch... Um, Dillinger, who was a bank robber at the time, when they catch Dillinger, they're going to make him sit through it twice. (laughs) And uh, Educational Pictures did not like that remark, so they canceled the rest of his contract. Oh, boy. That's Um, one way to get out of it. Yeah, I guess if you got... And I feel like he probably couldn't hold his tongue. You know, he's got to have a witty quip for everything. Right. Um, He soon signed with Vitaphone Short Subjects Studio in Brooklyn, um, making musical and comedy shorts during the day, performing his Broadway shows in the evening. And then he ended up moving to Hollywood officially uh, when Paramount Pictures signed him for the 1938 film, The Big Broadcast of 1938. Mm -hmm. And this movie is where he does for the first time his song, Thanks for the Memory which Ah. becomes his trademark song. Um, He uses it throughout his whole career. Every time he goes and sees the troops, he changes the lyrics to make it applicable and all kinds of stuff. But it's like Mm -hmm. attached to him, basically. I feel like it's impossible to like, hear that song in your head and not hear his voice singing. Yeah, yeah. It's like a Bing Crosby song. You just hear Bing Crosby. Yeah. Same thing. He became known for his comedies, specifically the Road series with his buddy, Bing Crosby. Oh, right. Mm -hmm. So these are movies like Road to Singapore, Road to Zanzibar, Road to Utopia, Road to Bali. They do a bunch of these. And they're very popular because they're two popular guys and they're good looking and And they have good chemistry. Yeah, they're being silly. Um, (laughs) The Paramount executives were amazed at how relaxed and compatible they were. Mm. Um, They kind of knew they'd hit gold with them as a comedy duo. Um, they'd actually, though, 
worked together on the vaudeville stage in the mm. past. Um, both of them, Bing Crosby on the more music side mm-hmm. and Bob Hope on the more like comedy dance side. Um, but they worked together in 1932. So it kind of felt like being reunited again. Hmm. And then after this, because they were so aligned in those movies they did a bunch of stuff together for the stage for the radio for television appearances um almost every decade until bing crosby died in 1977 Mm. so they became a pretty close duo Mm -hmm. they also invested together in business ventures and oil leases and they worked together on all kinds of stuff they even lived very close to each other Mm. um they kind of like built a life that was compatible it's said that they were not very social like in terms of like their private lives like they kind of kept to themselves but they had a really great working relationship Mm. so sadly (laughs) those were really his only successful films Mm. um he started 54 theatrical features between 1938 and 1972 but pretty much all of them were flops except for the road movies um but it's funny because it was never like people thought he was the bad charm Mm. Like they considered him funny and charming and he even like got decent, you know, responses and reviews and things like that. But his movie career just never hit. And I'm, I don't know what really caused that. If it's just like poor selection, if he just like didn't get put in the movies that were good or whatever, but for whatever reason, it just never took off. Mm. Um, But he did do many specials for the NBC television market in the decades around this time, um, beginning in April of 1950. As I said, he really liked that transition to TV because it was very similar to his like radio vaudeville stuff. And he was really well known on the radio. Everybody knew who he was. Everybody knew his comedy. So the transition was pretty easy. And NBC kind of knew he was a safe choice for a lot of stuff. Um, A funny thing, he is actually one of the first people credited with using cue cards. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And I mean, partially because he's one of the first people on TV, but (laughs) um, especially doing like these longer live shows. Um, His Christmas special every year was immensely popular. Mm. Um, His 1970 and 71 Christmas specials for NBC were filmed in Vietnam in front of military audiences. Oh, wow. Um, And they're on the list of the top 46 U.S. primetime telecasts. Um, They were seen by more than 60% of U.S. households. Um, Just like very, very popular. That's crazy. And speaking of which, he was a big supporter of the troops. Mm. Um, So he was very, very respectful of the armed forces, and he was willing to go absolutely anywhere to entertain them. He traveled to entertain troops throughout World War II, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Lebanon Civil War, the Iran-Iraq War, and the Persian Gulf War. Hmm. He headlined 57 times. Um, During this time, uh, specifically during the Vietnam War, he came under scrutiny in Hollywood by a lot of the people who were anti-war. His shows started to have like a political bend of in the audience where Mm. he would sometimes do shows and they would just get booed out the whole time. Hmm. Um, And then other times they weren't. So, you know, and of course that was the war time. So, you know, that's That's kind of part of the culture. Um, the, this is part of what I want to talk about with his like business ventures. Um, so the tours that he did were funded by the U.S. Department of Defense, uh, his television sponsors, and by NBC because they knew that they could broadcast the television specials 
um, with the footage shot on location then. Hmm. Um, but the footage and shows were owned by Hope's own production company, which made them very lucrative ventures for him. Right. And so he kind of started to create this company that was a production company, but also had him at the center of it. And so it was like his commodity was mm-hmm. himself rather than the making of the production, whatever it was. Right. So just interesting. And I mean, we hmm. see a lot of comedians trying to do this now too yeah. as they navigate like the stand-up world the world of specials the world of trying to get tv show spots all that kind of stuff mm. uh during this time along with his buddy bing crosby he was offered a commission in the united states navy as lieutenant commander during world war ii but fdr intervened uh and he thought it would be better for troop morale if those two guys kept doing what they were doing by playing and entertaining the military services John Steinbeck wrote about him uh, during World War II, saying, quote, When the time for recognition of service to the nation in wartime comes to be considered, Bob Hope should be high on the list. This man drives himself and is driven. It is impossible to see how he can do so much, can cover so much ground, can work so hard, and can be so effective. He works month after month at a pace that would kill most people. Hmm. So, anyways, lots of respect for him in the uh, military services world. He wins a bunch of medals and is honored by lots of presidents, whatever. Interesting. Um, and so the last thing I want to kind of talk about is just his comedy. Um, as I mentioned, he really helped establish the modern American style of stand-up comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, he was praised for his comedic timing, for his use of one-liners, for his rapid-fire delivery of jokes, for his kind of like plain face about them. He wasn't like mm. setting them up and then delivering the punch that you knew was coming. Right. He was relying more on wit and brevity to be funny. And he also had this style that people just loved of self-deprecation where he would build himself up and then tear himself all the way down. Mm. He performed hundreds of times per year, every year. Mm. Um, he The one problem that he struggled with was he tried to keep his material up to date, but he just never changed his comic persona or any of his routines mm. very much. Um, So, like, he would change some of the material, but the style and the setup was almost the same all the way through. And when Hollywood started to transition in the 60s, he was pretty negative about it. In the same way, we've seen a lot of people who, during this, like, upheaval in the, like, mid to late 60s, struggled with figuring out what the next era of Hollywood was going to be. When he hosted the 40th Academy Awards in 1968, uh, he voiced his contempt for these things by mocking the show's delay because of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Mm. Um, He also was very condescending towards younger actors on stage during the show, like Dustin Hoffman. He referred to him as a child, stuff like that, where it was like the divide was becoming clearer and clearer as time passed. Um, But all that said, he was the host for 19 times between 1939 and 77. Um, During this, his feigned desire for an Oscar became a very integral part of the act. Of course. Um, (laughs) Of course, his most famous little bit in the 1968 telecast, he quipped, Welcome to the Academy Awards, or as it's known at my house, Passover. He was never actually nominated for an Oscar, but the uh, Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences did honor him with four different honorary awards, and in 1960 presented him with the Gene Herschel Humanitarian Award, Mm -hmm. uh, which is given out as a part of the Oscar ceremony. So he did win like five things anyways. Mm -hmm. Oh, one last little thing I forgot to mention earlier, but I'll just say real quick is that he loved golf. (laughs) That's a very big part of his personality as well. That makes uh, sense. Yeah. He hosts a bunch of charity tournaments. Um, He loves 
golfing with people. He would golf with the presidents at different times. Mm. Like he was just very popular in that. Um, he was kind of known for bringing a golf club to his acts. Like that was a part oh, of his sure. comedy persona as well. Also a part of his, I mean, he did a lot of charity work as right. you can imagine. Um, one of the main things he did charity work for was um fight for sight because he suffered from a lot of vision problems um he was also an honorary chairman on the board as well because he got smashed by a tree <laughs> i guess probably <laughs> i didn't think about that i mean it may have something to do with it <laughs> but anyways um he lived to be a hundred years old wow that is so crazy yeah Funny enough, I didn't realize that. Yeah, he died two months after his 100th birthday. Wow. Funny enough, in 1998, five years before his death, <laughs> they had a prepared obituary already written. Oh, nice. That was accidentally released. Um, so his death was announced on the floor of the U.S. House of Representatives. Oh, my. And he was like, hello, I'm not dead. <laughs> huh, that's crazy. He was actually very active and kicking literally until he died. Hmm. Um, he celebrated his 100th birthday on May 29th, 2003. Oh, I should have mentioned this earlier. He converted to Catholicism seven years before his death. Which oh, interesting. It's just a funny turn of events. Hmm. And then on the morning of July 27th, 2003, he passed from pneumonia in his home in Toluca Lake um, two months after his birthday. Hmm. His grandson, Zach Hope, told TV interviewer Soledad O'Brien that when asked on his deathbed where he wanted to be buried, he told Dolores, his wife, quote, surprise me. Oh, okay. So that's his final joke. And then he died. <laughs> great so anyways that's uh the life of uh bob hope uh his legacy lives on big time i mean there's the bob hope airport here in burbank uh-huh. um he won the presidential medal of freedom the national medal of the arts the ronald reagan freedom award um i figured you would like this so i included it in 1978 he was invited to dot the i in the ohio oh, state wow. university marching bands script ohio formation which is an honor only given to non-band members on 14 occasions from 1936 to 2016. Yeah, huh? I figured figured my Ohio boy would like to know that. Mm -hmm. And of course, I mentioned the Academy Award honors he was given as well. So to close my section, I wanted to share some of my favorite jokes of his Uh from the Academy Awards. And they're all very civil, you know. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk about him today is that he embodies something that I appreciate a lot uh, throughout his life and his time hosting, which is he loves the movies. Mm-hmm. He loves Hollywood. He's a genial guy. He loves the people around him. He loves the Hollywood industry. He's buddies with everybody. Mm-hmm. And he's teasing, of course, and that's his style. But he's very generally positive about the Academy Awards and sees it as a prestigious honor and a night of celebration, which I just so appreciate because I'm so sick of the cynical you know talking down on yeah hollywood and whatever so anyways uh as of course i mentioned his best and most iconic joke is the passover one similarly he said quote we're all here to celebrate oscar or as he's known at my house the fugitive okay another one is quote tonight we set aside petty differences forget old feuds and start new ones mm-hmm. he also says quote personally i never drink on oscar nights as it interferes with my suffering after uh, Ronald Reagan became governor of California, he said, quote, to all you losers, remember, there's a bright side to all of this. You can still run for governor. Mm-hmm. He made lots of like cute jokes that I thought were cute. Like, Mr. William Wyler, will you please see the cop out front? Your chariot is double parked. Or 
Some of the pictures were grim, but what realism. In fact, I'm surprised to see Susan Hayward here tonight. We all know how Jack Lemmon got in there, lending his apartment to members of the Academy. Mm-hmm. This was the year Marlon Brando became director of a Western. It was the first picture ever made with method horses. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, one of the openings, he said, quote, But isn't it exciting? All over America, people are saying to each other, I wonder who will win. And all over Beverly Hills, psychiatrists are dusting off their couch saying, I wonder who will lose. <laughs> That's silly. Uh, he said, quote, Ladies and gentlemen, before I begin, I have an announcement. After much soul searching, I've concluded that the awesome job of MC should not become involved in partisan bickering. At all costs, we must preserve unity and avoid further divisiveness in our great industry. Accordingly, I've decided that I will not seek out, nor will I accept an Oscar. <laughs> and then the last one I liked that I wrote down was that, quote, I think The Godfather Part Two has an excellent chance of winning. Neither Mr. Price or Mr. Waterhouse have been heard from in days. Uh oh. <laughs> so, anyways, of course, these are all better in context and when, you know, a comedian says them. Oh. But, <laughs> yeah, so uh, that's what I have to share today about comedian, host, do it all man, Bob Hope. Hmm. Well, great. I learned a lot about Bob Hope. Good. Yeah, I didn't know anything about him. So, I know a little bit about him, but not too much. Yeah. He seems like a normal guy in a lot of ways golfing and boxing and wanting to do movies and he seems like a person who should be named bob (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) and with that we come to our final segment of the show where we thank the academy for things relating to this episode the movies that we talked about the people that we talk about what would you like to thank the academy for today Kristen? i would like to thank the academy for I don't know who you want to thank, but I'm going to thank God for intervening in George Lucas's wayward plans because, uh, boy, a lot could have gone wrong and instead something incredible happened, something that is cherished and passed down through the ages and still holds up, honestly. Um, it was crazy rewatching this movie in the, I mean, it's very weird every time we rewatch something in the context of this podcast and like seeing it in its true place in history around what else was popular at the time. Yeah. And like, because I, yeah, we grew up watching Star Wars all the time. I mean, I can't even imagine the number of times I've watched this movie. Oh yeah, me too. I mean, and the number of times that like I, when I was little, that was all we played was Star Wars. Mm -hmm. And you know, that was the coolest thing I could ever imagine existing. Well, and it's so interesting to watch it. Like, as a film right. and like thinking uh-huh. of it as like yeah a form of artistic expression and that yeah people had to work on this movie yeah. and it came out during this time in history and culture yeah. and like yeah very interesting well and like i mean just bring it up around any dad and you'll hear all the stories about how he saw it in theaters i mean my dad had the best possible experience seeing it and then passed that down to me and made it a big event when we watched it together the first time and you know it's just such a cultural thing it's pretty pretty incredible call it fate call it luck call it uh, the force was the with force him. <laughs> everything needed to be balanced out and so uh well and luckily he had the wherewithal to not direct the next two yeah yeah <laughs> so anyways that's what my thanks is all right i would like to thank uh having a good cast hmm. because this movie has a great cast hmm. 
just all in all, like everyone who's in it is good. Yeah. And a lot of them were a little green in this first film. Sure. But they're all like good to watch. They're very likable. They are very likable. They fit the style. The bad guys are really bad looking. And yeah. The good guys look like heroes and act like heroes and you believe they're heroes through and through. Well, and like the right people have the right styles of training to like fit this, like their specific roles Mm -hmm. in the movie. Mm -hmm. Also the, all the young, I mean, they're basically kids. Yeah. Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher. Yeah. They're so cute. Then you have someone like Alec Guinness, who is like the most trained and the most prestigious playing the character that's mentoring these kids. Right. I mean, who is like the most prestigious. So his style works perfectly for the film. Yeah. And I mean, I, yeah, Obi-Wan is like the best character in the movie. So <laughs> yeah, nice. That's good. I would like to thank the Academy for people like Bob Hope who find a way to keep doing stuff that they like, even mm. when things don't work out. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that I take away from his career is he failed as an actor mm-hmm. and he didn't want to. Yeah. And I don't think that it was necessarily his fault either. Like, mm-hmm. I haven't seen any of his movies, so I couldn't tell you the quality of his acting. But, like, I mean, it from everything I've read, it's not because of him that his career failed. It's because the movies just failed. Mm-hmm. And I think to be able to be someone who bounces back and continues to find ways to show your talent and your skill and find enjoyment in life and do things that are meaningful is really impressive because sometimes it's so easy to get stuck in one mindset where it's like, if this one thing doesn't work out, what am I going to do? My life is over. And it's like, well, there's a million ways to enjoy show business, you know? Right. And I appreciate people who are performers just to their core. Like he couldn't do anything else. He had to be performing somehow. Hmm. And he never won an Academy Award. And here we are talking about him on our Academy podcast. Oh, boy. We've talked about a lot of people who haven't won Academy Awards. Not really. Yeah. Our main man, Bosley. Okay. All right. Fine. (laughs) And my final thanks goes to the love of movies. Aw. And that was one thing that I really liked and have liked as we've talked about him a lot over the course of this podcast. Is that he was like so into Hollywood and the movies. Mm -hmm. And that is probably part of what gave him like the staying power Mm -hmm. and the strength and the, you know, wanting to be around it constantly. Yeah. But I don't know. It's so infectious when you come across those people who just love stuff. Yeah. It's so much more beneficial to the world when you're a fan of things and you can champion them and support them and like be a friend to everyone and like hold the whole thing up in high regard. Yeah. And treat other people's successes like it's awesome rather than like, it's competitive and cutthroat. And of course it is in a way, right. but to still like see those things as remarkable and good and yeah, to be a fan. I I mean, obviously we on this podcast are very pro enthusiasm <laughs> and pro being excited about things. <laughs> yeah. But it's nice to have somebody like that who goes through their whole life and just loves entertaining, mm-hmm. loves comedy, loves dancing and singing, loves mm-hmm. the movies. And he just seems like the kind of person who was just like, 
filled with a lot of enjoyment of those things and wanted to pass it on. Mm. Yeah, if only I could be that filled with enjoyment <laughs> of life. <laughs> and maybe he, I mean, maybe he had his own personal struggles. But oh, I'm sure he did. And I probably should have talked about that more, you know, counterbalanced But it's it, great but... to be known as somebody who just is like so joyful and brings joy and loves to do stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was like America's favorite comedian. Yeah. So. Well, congrats to him. Yeah. And he got lots of honorary Oscars for it. <laughs> that are literally all for your contributions to the Academy or to Hollywood. It's like, all right. <laughs> Guess I got to keep doing what I'm doing. <laughs> well, and with that, thank you for joining us. Yeah. We always uh, have a good time here. <laughs> we hope you learned something new about Star Wars or Bob Hope. Yeah, if it's possible. I've, I've learned some stuff about Star Wars that oh. I didn't know, so that's good. Good. And I learned some stuff about Bob Hope. Great. <laughs> uh, and with that, we leave you and say, join us next week. Yeah. When we discuss the 51st Academy Awards and the Best Picture winner, The Deer Hunter. Thank you for tuning in to Thank the Academy. You can follow us on social media at Thank the Academy Podcast on Instagram and at Thank Academy Pod on Twitter. If you enjoy listening to the show, make sure to leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and subscribe on your favorite streaming platform. The theme song was created by the one and only Noah Heisinga. Join us next week on Thank the Academy.